we're looking at part two of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the apostle to, to, to all the nations. He takes the gospel all over the Roman world, becomes pretty much uh, in the second half of the book, the central character in the book of Acts, an incredible guy. And we looked last week at this journey he was taking on the road to Damascus, going from Jerusalem, having letters from the chief priests to, to arrest Christians and to put them in prison and to persecute them, and that was okay. But something happened that day. He realized that everything that he believed was wrong, that he was missing the point of his own faith, and that the point of his own faith wasn't to stomp out Christians, but the very person that they were esteeming. They weren't called Christians yet. They were just part of this Jewish sect called the Way. They weren't called Christians until uh, Paul joined this man Barnabas at Antioch. That was the first time anybody was called a Christian. But they were just followers of this, this way, this way of Jesus. And they were proclaiming in Jesus that he had risen from the dead and that his followers would too. That all of God's promises that he had given to his people throughout time and history had come to completion in this moment, this, this life and ministry and then death and resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And Paul was trying to stop that very way, that very movement. He he, with everything in him, wanted to see it end. And he came to find a startling reality on the road to Damascus that day as he met Jesus in a blinding light. Here's what he came to find out. That God is able, in spite of his own inability, Paul was making his own path to God through his achievement and through his striving. Now, he was a man of faith. He was a man who believed but his own effort, he believed, would get him into the kingdom of God. And when he met Jesus, he realized that everything he thought about that wasn't, wasn't true. He realized that despite his inability, God was able. Despite his inability, God could do it. Is there anything that you're just, you're just you know in and of your natural self, you're unable to do? Um, I, I was a precocious, that just means really, really good math student when I was in middle school and high school and elementary school. You want to know why? Here, I'm going to let you in on a little secret about Ryan Falls, okay? I was held back from going into the first grade and had to repeat kindergarten. I think that's the only reason I was such a good math student, because I had more time uh, to develop. They, they told my mother that I wasn't mature enough for the first grade. Um, whatever. I'm over it. It's fine. Um, so... <laughs> So I, I did, I was an older kid in my class always, and so then because of that, I, I was always a little further along than the other kids, and I found myself uh, in the middle of a calculus class as a junior in high school, and, you know, I could fake my way through multiplication tables and algebra and geometry, but you can't fake your way through calculus. Like, I, I have an inability with calculus in and of my own natural person, and I was sitting in calculus one day, and there was this great student, Laurel Dolan sitting next to me. She lived in my neighborhood. We were friends. And she was, lo and behold, asking me for help with that day's work. Now, Ms. Snab, I want to highlight Ms. Uh, she was probably single for a reason because she wasn't very nice, okay? And um, Ms. Snab, I'm sorry, Ms. Snab, if you're listening to this, I don't really mean it. Um, it you just hurt me, and you're going to hear why. She walked by and looked at me helping Laurel uh, with her work, and she said to Laurel, why in the world would you ask him for help? Why in the world would, yeah, uh-huh, you feel my pain? And you know what? I got a three on the AP exam, and I never had to take another math class for the rest of my life. So take that. 
Take that, Miss Snab, okay? I did it. But, but, but I'll tell you the truth. I have an inability on my own to be good at, at doing calculus. It's just not going to happen. I'd have to work my tail off, and even then, I wouldn't be great at it. And I know you have things in your life that, that when you look at them, when you think about them, you just think, I'll never do that. And one of the great ironies of life is uh, most of us walk through life until we meet God thinking that uh, if we just do enough good things, we can get to him. If we just go to church or we just engage in religiosity, we'll be good enough for God. But the watershed moment in the life of faith in Christ is you come to the end of yourself and you realize in coming to the end of yourself, I'm not able to make this work. I can't. I can't do it. I'm not good enough for Jesus. I'm not good enough for God, and I never will be. It's exactly what happened to Paul as he was trekking to arrest Christians in Damascus. I mean, Chris said this well last week, that in order to save us, often God has to stop us. Uh, In order to make us new, often God has to break us down. And that's what happens, and Paul goes into the city, and he stays at this house, and he's been blinded by the light, and we pick up in our text, and we see that three things that happens is God is able, in spite of my inability. First, God's able to make us a new person. Second, God's able to give me a new passion. And third, uh, God's able to to provide for me uh, a new path of preparation as I follow him to live the life that he's called me to live. A new person, a new passion, and new preparation. Uh, We're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 10. Read there with me if you would. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, as you would and I would too. Uh, Lord, hold on. Time out. I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus on whom he said, or he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight, and then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. See, in this moment, Paul, or Saul, becomes a new person. He becomes a new person, and God breaks down the old to make the new. He breaks down the old to make the new. And he calls him to a new way of life. It's not by accident that Saul goes and stays in this house waiting for Ananias to come. God is doing something in his life. Chris talked about this. There's deep repentance going on. He's had the chance after meeting Jesus to reflect on everything that he's done and take ownership of it. I mean, can you imagine the regret that he felt? Can you imagine um, 
the sorrow that he felt over his sin. And yet Jesus doesn't interact with him in a harsh tone. He comes to him and in kindness, and in kindness, he leads him to repentance. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's what he said as we looked at it last week. Why do you persecute me? He said, who are you? And Jesus said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And just like he broke Saul in order to claim his life for himself, Jesus does the same thing with you and with me. We come to the end of ourselves and we see that there's no hope for us outside of him. There's no hope for you outside of Jesus. And you may have heard that a thousand times, but can I just tell you again, there's no hope for you and there's no hope for me outside of the saving work and the person of Jesus Christ. There's no hope. I remember the first time that I realized that. I had been going to church for several years and I was going into middle school at that very, you know, normal, non-awkward time in life. And I went to a camp in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I, I sat there for a week. And I thought I was a Christian because I went to church. And I heard throughout the course of the week this theme that God doesn't just want you to go to church. He wants you for himself. He wants a relationship with you. And I grew up in a very broken family. Like, we could all tell our stories here. And we've got a lot of stories of brokenness, of hurt, of dysfunction, of abuse, and I watched a family try to project an image to the world of people who kind of had it all together, and we were trying to help ourselves. I just saw through it. I knew it wasn't true. And when I heard that only Jesus could save me, something clicked the fourth night of camp, and I was broken. And I gave my life to Christ, and it was a moment I will never, ever, ever forget. And in order to make the new, God often has to break the old. And when he does that, he gives you and I a call. He gives you and I a call. And in this text, he gives, he gives Saul a call as well. He gives him something that he's going to do. Now, there's two senses to the call of God for all of us as believers. First, and this is universal, there's a general call on all of our lives to come to me, just like Jesus called us, all who are weary and heavy laden, to remain in me, just like Jesus told his disciples to do right before he left in John. There's that general call to a relationship with Christ, to intimacy with God. Every single one of us are accountable to that call. And when you became a Christian, if you're a Christian, God called you first, first and foremost to himself. And he wants you to know him. He wants you to walk closely with him. He wants you to hear his voice. God wants to make you more like Jesus See, the word in this text for Christians is disciple. You know what that word means? It means apprentice. And disciples followed their teacher because their goal was to become exactly like him. That's exactly the kind of life that Jesus invites us into. He wants you to become like him in his character and who he is. He wants you to know him personally and intimately. And he makes himself available for you to that. But second of all, there is a call that God extends to his people. God's prepared us uh, by both our temperament, our experiences, our background, our stories. God's prepared you for ministry in this world. And he gives you ministry to do. There are things that he wants you to do. We got to get out of the row mentality. We got to get into circles. And then we got we to gather on Sundays and scatter throughout the week. And God's given you ministry. And so often we tie that word ministry up with a, with a job especially in American culture. 
And so when I say God's called you to ministry, you think, well, yeah, he's called you to ministry, Ryan, because you're our pastor and we, we give generously, thank you for doing that, to support you in your work, and, and we pay you, and you, you do the work of ministry. But you know what my job is? If I read the scripture correctly, my job is to equip you for the work of ministry. That's my job. And we do it together. We're team. So Matthew's East, this is team Matthew's East, and God's called us to ministry. And he's called you to ministry. It's not by accident. It's not on accident that, that you have the gifts and the passions and the wirings that you do. Psalm 139, God knit you together in your mother's womb. Do you think he made a mistake when he, when he formed in you unique talents and abilities? No. Do you think your struggles are an obstacle for God? No, they're an opportunity for God. Do you think your story is something that God can't overcome? No, God wants to use your story to make much of himself. Go, he says to Ananias, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. In other words, Ananias, I know he's made your people suffer, but don't worry, he's going to suffer for me too. And he's going to understand it, and maybe, maybe all the wrongs that he's done are going to give him a different perspective when he suffers himself. Can I just look, if I could look into every single person's eyes and just have a moment with you, can I just entreat you, can I beg of you to embrace the calling that God has on your life? You might say, I don't, I don't know what that is. I don't, I don't know what that means. Can I beg of you to ask God, God, what, what are you releasing me for in this world? Where do I serve in the church? Where do I serve in the community? Where do I serve in my neighborhood? What does that look like for me? I know that's a confusing word, our calling. It's, it's a challenging word, and, and it means different things for all of us. But God has called you to good works. So many of us are caught up in the mundane, you know. We need to hear this again and again, but there's, there's a cultural narrative of what it means to be called to live the good life. And the cultural narrative is you go to a good school, uh, you do well in high school, you go to a good college, you, you, you marry a, a, a decent human being, you have children, you get into a career path, you work your tail off when you're young, you work, you know, a thousand hours a week so that you can make money, and then you can get to the top of an organizational structure in a company, this is the American dream, is you can have what you want, you can be happy, you can have lots of stuff, and then one day, maybe when you're 62, maybe when you're 68, maybe when you're 70, then you can retire. You know, I grew up in, I grew up in Michigan, uh, which from June through August is the most beautiful place in the world, and the rest of the year, it's okay, okay? And, um, and so the dream in Michigan is you, you go to one of the great schools in the state, you get a good job. Uh, we have the auto industry, not the, not the finance world there, so you, you get involved in that maybe. And then, and then when you're old, you save up enough money so that you can keep your home in Michigan so you can live there in June, July, and August. And then the rest of the year, you, you go somewhere like Florida. That was where everybody went. My grandparents went there every winter. They went down to Florida, and you buy a house, or you rent a condo, or now they've built this community called the Villages. It's apparently the happiest hometown in Florida. And, um, 
My parents went there this last winter, but that's what you do. That's, that's the dream. And when we read stories like Paul's story, we're reminded that that is not our dream, church. That is not what we live for. That's not what we build up. That's not what we're after. So can I just encourage you? Can I just encourage you and beg of you to embrace God's calling on your life and to figure out what that is and to throw yourself into his kingdom and his world? Now here's the great news, okay? You're still new. You're still new. And you're still you at the same time. And so when we become a follower of Jesus, the same was true for Paul. God didn't change every part of Paul's personality. God didn't, didn't say, you know what, I can't work with who you were in the past. He took Paul's gifting, he took Paul's experiences, and he used them for the specific call that he was going to have on his life. Now, Paul grew up, Paul was a precocious child. He was a smart kid. He grew up in Tarsus, and his parents were probably unbelievably proud of him because he went through, there were three phases to rabbinical training in Jewish life. And he, in order to move on to the next one, you had to be the best of the best at the first one. So he went through uh, the first phase where you memorize the Torah, and he probably did very well at that. And then he went through the second phase where you um, not only memorize the Torah, but you memorize the rest of the Old Testament, and you become familiar with the general teachings of how to interpret it. And then Paul was selected, we know, by uh, Gamaliel, this famous uh, Jewish rabbi at the time, to be one of his students. He was one of the best rabbis in all of Israel. So Paul was the cream of the crop. He had risen to the top. He knew what he knew, and he knew who he was, and he had a pretty good thing going in life. And when Paul became a believer, God was able to use his unique experiences to shape his unique trajectory for ministry in the world. And he does the same thing with us. So he makes us a new person. And I need to say this. Uh, this is super important. This is a word to all the lifers, okay? Uh, Chris talked about this last week. But some of us, we read a story like the story of uh, Saul's conversion, and it's easy for us to, to tune it out. We just tune it out because we're like, okay, whoa, 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 hold on. This guy was going to kill, he was a murderer. He, he breathed violence. I, I wasn't like that. I mean, s- s- many of us, we grew up in church. And if we had to make it a complete hyperbole, you know, you were in the nursery and somehow you raised your hand in the nursery and your nursery worker just thought that you were making a profession of faith. And then they baptized you the next week and that's all you've ever known. That's the narrative of your life. I've always been a Christian. I've always been a Christian, so how can, how can my story be, be Saul's story? How can God make me new? God doesn't make me new. I've always been new. And I, I want to push back on that a lot, because if you become a Christian at a young age, there is a whole lot of saving that needs to happen in your story, because you were born uh, to parents who were sinful people, and you have their DNA in you, and you watch them make bad choices, and you yourself are subject to being able to be tempted to sin. All of us are. We can, it's all possible, even if we're followers of Jesus, that we can go way off the reservation. And so there are three senses in the New Testament 
to salvation. There's justification, there's sanctification, and there's glorification. So let's dig into this for just two minutes. Justification says, I'm legally righteous before God. That happens in a moment when you place your trust in Christ. So he gets all of your guilt, all of your sin, all of your shame, and you say, you look at the cross, and when you become a Christian, you say, uh, he died in my place, he took my sin, he bore it for me on my behalf in his substitutionary work. He became a substitute for what I deserved. And in that moment, Jesus um, becomes responsible for your sin, and you, in turn, are given, the, the, the technical word is imputed, meaning that you're given all of his righteousness. You don't do anything to get it. It's called alien righteousness because it's outside of yourself. Okay, so you get the righteousness of God in your life. But there's a second sense to salvation that we, we walk with our entire life on earth and as a believer, and it's called sanctification. And sanctification is a process in life whereby we become more and more and more like Jesus as the Holy Spirit works to call us closer, to woo us nearer to him. And so if you became a Christian early in life, I would say that your salvation story is still miraculous and it needs to continue to be miraculous because there's the temptation to just put everything on autopilot and not see the fact that you are a person who still has an old nature and you need the work of God in your life always. Always, 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 all of us do. And then there's glorification. The moment when we're absent from the body and we're present with the Lord or the moment when in our story, Jesus returns and he makes all things new on this earth and everything is done. There's no more tears, there's no more pain, there are no, there's no more sorrow for us. So God is able, in spite of my inability, he's able to make me a new person and that should never get old. Second, he's able to put in me a new passion. Let's look at verse 20. Through 22. Read there with me. Immediately, this is Paul, Saul. We're just going to use those names interchangeably. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were, they were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, I'm going to keep reading, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. So this is where passion leads him. His passion leads him uh, many times in his life to be the subject of a murder scheme. Someone else plots to end his life because he's such a disturbance to them just as Christians once were to him. The irony of all ironies. <laughs> the one who persecutes becomes the most persecuted uh, because of his new passion and faith in Christ. And God wants to use all of your past as he consumes your present. God wants to consume your thinking, your living, your acting, your breathing. When Jesus comes into your life, when he comes into my life, he doesn't want to be an ancillary part of our story. Oh, yeah, you know, I go to church. Where do you go to church? I go to church at, at New City Church, and I'm involved there. Sometimes I serve. I've been on a couple of trips. 
Jesus wants to consume us. It's, it's, it's the thing that's our highest good. There's nothing better that could happen for you and for me than that Jesus would be your all-consuming passion in this world. That's where you flourish. That's where you really thrive. It's not because, you know, you've got the house and the cars and the, and the kids and the wife and the pool and the country club membership. You thrive because of Jesus. Those things are fine, but you thrive because he becomes the all-consuming passion and story in your life. And so God wants to put in us a new passion. And our passion is the fuel that fires our action. We don't do things because we have to. We do things because we can't help but speak. That's what we see over and over again in the book of Acts. We see the followers of Jesus completely enraptured, completely in love with him, and that love drives them to do crazy things. And the same should be true for us. And finally, he's able to provide a pathway for preparation, for whatever it is he's called you to in life. Um, Let's look together, starting in verse 26. So, there's a plot to murder him, and some of his disciples help him escape (laughs) Damascus. They lower him down uh, in a basket through the city wall, and he escapes. And verse 26 says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, okay? Now, here's what we don't see that's going on. If you've read the book of Galatians, you, you, you might remember, oh, I think there's something that happens after he leaves Damascus. What is it that happens? He goes for three years from there to Arabia, to the desert, to the wilderness, and spends three years alone. We don't really know what he did. We don't really know what was going on, but this is what it says um, in Galatians. So God reveals his son. He said, he was, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. So Paul has this has this asterisk here in his life that he leaves Damascus and goes to the wilderness. Why? Well, he probably, we we, we don't know exactly, but, but let's speculate a little with some good logic. For Paul, the two heroes of his faith were Moses and Elijah. And where did Moses go and where did Elijah go? In the wilderness to meet with God. They went to the mountain of God. So maybe, maybe it was Horeb, maybe it was Sinai. He went somewhere in the wilderness and probably spent three years in the tradition of these great leaders of the faith, knowing that he had a call in his life and spent time in preparation for whatever the Lord had for him next. And then he comes back and he goes to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 26, and when he comes to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Man, we need Barnabases in our life. We need people who, who, who believe, even when others don't believe, that God is doing something uh, that they would have never, ever expected. And some of us need to be Barnabases for other people. Some of you are, and you do that really well. 
Barnabas continues to have this ministry uh, as we see him in the book of Acts. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So Paul goes from Jerusalem to Damascus, from Damascus to the desert, probably back to Damascus, then back to Jerusalem. And then when he's in Jerusalem, he's arguing against the Hellenists, people who were like him, who were like him. That's who he was. He was a Hellenist. And then after that, he, they send him away because the Hellenists are going to kill him. And he goes home. He goes home and he stays in Tarsus, and we don't see him again until there are some problems at the church in Antioch. And this man Barnabas comes and knocks on his parents' door because Paul's probably there making tents, mending tents in this textile work that his family was involved in as a trade. And that's where this call really starts to take off. So God intentionally prepares us for that which he calls us to. And waiting time is never wasted time. Can I just tell you that when God calls you to something, it's very rare that it immediately happens. And if you're not prepared for that, then you don't understand the way that God's call normatively works in your life. God will never send you into something for which he hasn't first prepared you. And you and I need to learn patience. We need to learn to wait and be comfortable with waiting and embrace the pain that comes when we wait. Can you imagine what that was like? He went to the desert for three years and then he got sent home and he's probably thinking, what what in the world is happening with my life? There's this calling that I know I have from God. When's it going to happen? And God opens the door and he opens it through one of his people. And he does the same thing in your life, and he does the same thing in mine. God is able in spite of your inability. He's able in spite of my inability. We're going to close and respond by singing the doxology, which we do around here sometimes. I know if you grew up in church, that's like, that's like, a, like an old school traditional thing to do. Yeah, it is. It's an awesome song. So would you stand? I'm going to pray, and then Daniel's going to lead us in the doxology. Let's pray together. God, some of, us, um, some of us just need to, need to hear your voice today. And in the way, graciously, that you called Saul out of this life of rebellion against you. I mean, that's what it was at its core. You called him to yourself. You called him for a purpose. You do the same thing for, for us. And so gently, God, by, by the power of your spirit, would you speak in hearts and would you speak in lives this week? And maybe some people in this room this morning, Jesus, they don't know you. And and maybe they've been good, honest, religious people, but um, maybe right now they just need to come to the end of themselves and stop trying. And realize that, that you did all the trying for us and your trying was better than ours. It worked. Ours doesn't. So we celebrate that as your people today. And uh, I pray that we'd scatter with lives of worship. It's in your name we pray. Amen.